Good evening. Another police killing, this time of a black teenager in Columbus, Ohio. Her name is Makia Bryant. The federal government opens a civil probe into policing in Minneapolis a day after former officer Derek Chauvin is convicted of murdering George Floyd. And a gay man killed by cops in his apartment in the Bronx as he cooked dinner is left without justice. We speak to the attorney for the family of Kawasaki Trawick. Kowalski, Trawick, pardon me, and take your calls. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News, hosting a special program, Police Violence in America. It was only moments after the guilty verdict on Tuesday in the trial of Derek Chauvin when Columbus, Ohio, police shot and killed a teenage girl. The cops claim Makia Bryant swung at two other people with a knife. The audio is disturbing. Nicholas Reardon. Officer Reardon was working a one-officer car. He was hired in December of 2019. He's currently assigned to Zone 2, second shift, and he is the officer that discharged his firearm. Hey! What's going on? Hey, what's going on? Hey, 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 get down, get down, get down, get down! She had a knife. She just went at her. The public safety director of Columbus is Dr. Ned Pettis. I understand. The outrage and emotion around this incident. A teenage girl is dead. And she's dead at the hands of a police officer. Under any circumstances, that is a horrendous tragedy. But the video shows that there is more to this. It requires us to pause, take a close look at the sequence of events. And though it's not easy, wait for the facts as determined by an independent investigation. Public Safety Director Dr. Ned Pettis of Columbus, Ohio. Last night, hundreds of protesters took to the streets in Columbus chanting, say her name. Protesters last night in Columbus, Ohio, after an officer shot dead teenager, Makia Bryant. Meanwhile, in Washington, the Justice Department is opening a sweeping investigation into policing practices in Minneapolis after a former officer was convicted in the killing of George Floyd. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that today. The Justice Department was already investigating whether Chauvin and other officers involved in Floyd's death violated his civil rights. The investigation I am announcing today will assess whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of using excessive force, including during protests. The investigation will also assess whether the MPD engages in discriminatory conduct and whether its treatment of those with behavioral health disabilities is unlawful. It will include a comprehensive review of the Minneapolis Police Department's policies, training, supervision, and use of force investigations. It will assess the effectiveness of the MPD's current systems of accountability and whether other mechanisms are needed to ensure constitutional and lawful policing. And that's Attorney General Merrick Garland. The decision comes a day after former officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murder and manslaughter in Floyd's death. The new investigation is known as a pattern or practice examining whether there is a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing. And President Joe Biden called the guilty verdict in the murder trial 
On Tuesday, a potential giant step forward in the march towards justice in America. Biden says the verdict is a wake-up call for the United States. Brave young woman with a smartphone camera. A crowd that was traumatized. Traumatized witnesses. A murder that lasts almost 10 minutes in broad daylight for ultimately the whole world to see. Most men and women who wear the badge serve their communities honorably. But those few who fail to meet that standard must be held accountable, and they were today. One was. No one should be above the law. And today's verdict sends that message. But it's not enough. And as President Biden, just after the verdict was announced, he spoke on the phone with members of Floyd's family. And closer to home, two years ago this week, Kowalski Trawick was shot and killed by a New York City police officer. But it took 20 months to get the body cam footage of the killing released. The video showed two officers approached Trawick's apartment, push open the door, confront the 32-year-old man who was in his kitchen. One of the officers shot him with a taser. And then with his gun, the entire confrontation lasted 112 seconds. The audio you're about to hear is also disturbing. The fire department have already been here. Put the knife down. Why did you just kick in my door? The door was open with the chain. I'm knocking the door. Put the knife down. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, please. My man, drop the knife. Why? Why is my door? Drop the knife. Yeah, he's 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 yeah. Drop the knife. Yeah. Just only in this Drop the knife. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Drop the yeah. knife. Let me hear. Put the knife down. Put the knife down, please. Hold it. Hold Sir? it. Sir. The center. The center. The center of the bridge. According to reports on the website ProPublica.org, a more experienced black officer had tried to stop his younger white partner from using force. The younger officer first fired his taser without a verbal warning to Trawick, who had been standing with a bread knife and stick. When Trawick started running toward the officer seconds later, the officer shot Trawick twice, killing him almost instantly. It was in another ProPublica article released yesterday, as reported on the WBAI News, the family of Kowalski Trawick discovered through a reporter's questions the officers involved have been exonerated by the NYPD of any wrongdoing. Joining us live is attorney Royce Russell, who represents the Trawick family. Good afternoon, Mr. Russell. Welcome to WBAI. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yes. And uh, um, I never can have an attorney in one of these cases in any situation where um, it's a happy day. Unfortunately, Um, we heard the audio of what happened. We saw the body cam video. Why is Kowalski Trawick dead? Well, I think it is for abundance of reasons. One, it is that the underserved and the poor are voiceless. And because the NYPD refuses to have anything that is of consequence for attorneys, I mean, excuse me, for police officers that violate police patrol guide protocols. In this case here, one of the officers didn't even have his body cam on. In this case here, the police patrol guide states that you are to contain and isolate if you feel that the person that you are trying to arrest, and I really don't understand why they were trying to arrest uh, Mr. Trawick, if you feel that person presents a danger to others. He was in his apartment. He was cooking. He had a knife because he was cooking. And the only thing the police had to do was to close his door. At worst, if Mr. Trawick was arrested, he would have been charged with a violation of disorderly conduct. And until there is consequences for police misconduct, 
we will get more of the same. And in this particular case, there has been no consequence whatsoever. We have a district attorney's office in Bronx County. They did not pursue this case criminally. We have law enforcement, NYPD, which regulate and police themselves, did an internal investigation unbeknownst to anyone, myself, the family, and have essentially acquitted these officers. And anything that the Civil Complaint Review Board may suggest by way of administrative hearing, this commissioner has already put on the table that he finds his officers have done everything right, which I can't even understand under any circumstances. It's sort of like what kind of world do we live in? Yesterday we saw the verdict come um, guilty, and I think half of America at least, if not more, hopefully, was uh, relieved to see the officer fully, uh, the former officer convicted of of murder. Uh, Yet literally at the same moment in Columbus, Ohio, a, a teenager is shot dead because the officer said he was protecting another person from her, a child. Uh, I cannot imagine that happening in the neighborhood where I grew up. No, and this is why the analysis that needs to take, that needs to be uh, used is one that incorporates classism because there's classism that's, that's, that's interwoven into how people are treated together with racism, together with over-policing and the history. One of the, one of the telling signs in the Trawick matter is that there is a radio call for which another officer asked, is anyone hurt? The responding officer said no. Then he said just a perp. For our listeners out there, perp is abbreviated term for perpetrator. So that officer with Trawick laying there dead told another officer, no one is hurt. That to me sounds like Kowalski Trawick was no one. He was just a perp. And we all know that in war, and I hate to bring it up, but I think it's, I think it's more factual than fictional, that it appears to me that police play a role in certain communities as an occupying force. And during the time of war, if you could dehumanize the enemy, see them as something other than human, then it becomes easier to use force on that person. When you say no one is hurt but the perp, that to me highlights and illustrates the mindset of how people of color are viewed in the community despite the fact that they pay, pay police officers' salaries for protection. That, is, that, that just reinforces that what we saw yesterday in Minnesota is the exception. It is not the rule. And the movement to have, it, have, have that verdict be the rule or have that process take place it's it's so far down the line that we have a lot of work to do. And looking again at the Treywick case, um, the fact that yesterday WBAI did a story based on ProPublica reporting, the great reporter Eric Umansky has been on this case right from the beginning, yet we probably knew about it before Treywick's family knew about it. And once How is again, that? That is, a, that, that is a sign of that you're not important. That is the sign that you don't deserve the respect that people that pay your salary, citizens of the community for which you protect, would get. And it will only happen, once again, to communities that are voiceless and that are underserved. I firmly believe that. And so how is it that the family is not notified of their findings? As painful as it can be. How is it that there's no transparency and that the police department hid under the cloak of privacy issues as to the reason why they would not disclose and allow the family to see the body cam in their son's last moment of life? 
Where's the privacy? The privacy is to the deceased, Kowalski, Trawick. Is that the privacy issue that you have in mind? Because clearly it's not concerning the police officers because we have body cams. And there's no, there is no uh, agreement or contract that says that you cannot show that. As a matter of fact, the mayor has made it a point, even though he has been so much conflicted and contradicts himself, has made it a point to say that body cam has to be turned over over a period of time, within a period of time of 90, 60, or 30 days. So where's the conflict? I just think it's just an overall disrespect to the family, treating them less than human, less than they want what their family to be treated. And transparency is, is something that doesn't exist. And that's what we're fighting for, transparency and the termination of these officers. 20 months, is that true? I think I saw in a, one of the articles that it took 20 months for the body cam uh, footage to be released. And something that echoes what happened with De- Derek Chauvin, what's happened in with Greg Flo- uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis was the media, the police released to the media a false narrative of what happened and that we would never have known, as the New York Times reported today, we might never have known what happened in front of Cup Foods if it wasn't for a teenage woman with a camera who had the courage to stand there and film George Floyd being killed. In the case, it seems, which happened with Trawick is the the police also released a false narrative that was parroted in their newspaper, the New York Post, in many ways, uh, saying that uh, a playing up a knife, not saying it was a kitchen knife, play, saying he charged them, not saying he was uh, tased, uh, not saying that it was in his own home, that there was no charges, that there was no reason for the police to be there, just tur- turning it into another a uh, cop has to shoot crazed black man in the project story. Uh, how did that? Did, did you notice that? Am I correct in in, in, in explaining you, it that you, way? You are you are one hundred percent correct. But I must say, having the experience of litigating these cases for over a decade, it did not surprise me. It did not surprise me that they didn't put didn't didn't say one word about him being in his kitchen. Didn't say one word. How, how when the police were called, how they didn't talk to EMS or, or excuse me, FDNY, who were there prior to the police arriving, did not say one word as to how a video showed Mr. Trawick giving a fist pump and being elated at the fact that the FDNY got him back into his apartment. Why would he have? Why would he have the need to be violent? Everything was going his way and they do not speak to the requirement to de-escalate now remember as a police officer you're supposed to preserve human life why is that not at the forefront of anyone's mind that puts on that uniform and i will also say but for the video that displayed what happened to a degree in the hallway which I got my hands on. I don't know if the body cam video would be present to this day. And we've seen the ability to cut and paste and create false narratives. When we look back at 2012, the Ramali Graham shooting of Ramali Graham in front of his grandmother and his six-year-old brother, where it was shown a gentleman in white running. And And NYPD said that was Ramali Graham running after making a drug, drug transaction. Meanwhile, but for and the grace of God that his mother and the landlord of the building that they lived in had their own security camera and showed Ramali Graham walking calmly to his front door wearing all black, not even realizing that police were anywhere around. And there is no apologetic sympathy, empathy, emotion, a feeling from NYPD to retract or to apologize. And because that starts at the top, that infiltrates through every and transcends through every officer that puts on that uniform. There is no apology. I haven't heard any apology. 
One has not been given to the family. No one has reached out to me to reach out to the family to say, I am sorry. All I've received is stonewall after stonewall after stonewall to get transparency so they can litigate this case in civil court and receive some type of justice by way of the court system. Right. We're speaking with Royce Russell. He's an attorney for the family of of Kowalski Trawick, and he had also, as you just mentioned, represented the family of Romarley Graham, another victim of, as you were describing, a, uh, a horrendous uh, assault where officers actually entered his home, chased him into his house, and uh, violated that sanctity in the constitution of your own home. There's no place more uh, protected under the law, and uh, they had no warrant of any sort and just pursued him into his own house and, and shot him dead. A, a horrifying story. Um, uh, Mr. Russell, would you be willing to stay around with us for a few minutes and ta- maybe take a few calls from our listeners who might have sure. some questions? Sure. I appreciate that. Our number here is 212-209-2877. As I said, our guest, Royce Russell, an attorney who has, as he mentioned, a, a dozen years or so of experience uh, in uh, litigating these kind of cases of police misconduct. Again, our number, 212 Two eight seven seven. Our engineer Reggie Johnson. Um, just uh, feel free to jump in when we have a call on the line, and we'll start taking some calls no as problem. soon as they call in. No problem. Re- All right. And uh, so uh, you know, again, l- looking back on this, do you do you think? I mean, what is the solution to this problem? I mean, it's. It, they always say it's the bad apples, weed out the bad apples. It's the training. The officers aren't getting enough training. Um, one of the horrifying aspects of this case of of Trawick, of the Trawick of, of Kowalski is that um, the one officer actually, the more experienced officer, tried to actually grab the arm of his partner to keep him from shooting. Not only physically, but verbalize that we're not going to Pays him. So I'm almost certain that he meant put away your firearm, thinking that he had a taser. I don't think he was implying we're not going to tase him. Make sure you get your 38 caliber and shoot him. But what is of importance here is that the inexperienced officer of approximately four years compared to the officer of 16 years decided that he's going to do it his way. And the dynamic of black and white is important here because why would you not listen to your superior in this situation? What would make you think that you know best? What would make you think that you're doing the right thing when he's telling you what to do? Now, the NYPD has to deal with those conflicts on its own time in its own space. But it is telling when you look at that and the racial dynamic and the class dynamic that exists when Mm -hmm. protecting the underserved and the poor. Now, I'm no lawyer, but uh, intent seems to be a big part of the law. You know, if there's in a lot of so-called crimes, it's no crime if there's no intent. If you weren't intending to commit a crime, if it happened by accident or you walked into the situation, there has to be intent. So here – there seems to be intent because he has to be grabbed by the other guy. He's like intending to shoot this man. Not only intent because you dis- discarded what your fellow officer says, there is areas of law that speak to reckless and negligent. That is a situation where that officer was reckless and negligent. And I'm not concerned about what he can prove at trial that may get him acquitted that's what his defense attorney is for. As a prosecutor, as a district attorney, these are the facts as I see it. My job is to let the process trust the process. If the grand jury decides that they want to not vote a true bill and indict the officer, at least you went through the process and the family can have some justice and have an understanding that everything was done within the confines of the law 
Let's jump in. We have a couple of calls online. Uh, Again, uh, our guest is Royce Russell. This is a special program on WBAI News uh, following the conviction yesterday of uh, Derek Chauvin and the uh, murder of George Floyd. But now we're talking about so many cases in New York. Each each and every one of them rises to the uh, to the to the horror and to the questioning of our democracy as uh, represented by the trial in Minnesota. So um, if you're there on the line, I guess we got a couple of callers. Let's take the first call. Okay. Go ahead. You're on the line. Welcome to WBAI. Hello? Yes, you're on the air. Okay. Um, the, Could I the, ask the, a question before you jump in? Where are you calling from? What part of town? Okay, I'm calling in from Brooklyn. I, I'm a minority. And... Uh, Spanish, also Hispanic, and um, the, the, I was going to say that, that for, for the change, they should test the cop, the, the police officers before they become cops to see if they are, are psychopaths, because sometimes they could come come from uh, right wing groups that are hate groups, and sometimes they join the military to get training and actual fighting. It's, it's, uh, how you say fighting? Uh, um, methods, and then they become cops when they come back into the to the states, and, like martial um, arts or something like that. Well, they might they have be they trained shoot and kill, and kill uh, other people from other countries, and then they come to the United States and they become cops because they have the, they can handle a gun pretty well, and and they happen to be from some hate group from the United States. Also, just check to see if they're psychopaths. And, and third, with this president, uh, uh, the hit, the, um, uh, Adolf Hitler wrote, wrote a book, uh, several books, and it says um, on how to get the ethnic groups to clash with each other. That way, um, a strong arm can come in and control everything. And that's the book that, that um Donald Trump used to read before he became the president, as he said on TV in an interview, the wife, his ex-wife, that he used to browse through the book and then he used to go to sleep. And then, um, <laughs> they put him to sleep. Lots of Nazism. Oh, th- thank you. That's a very that's our t- our WBAI listeners, uh, uh, Royce. They're always right on top of it, and they're they're smarter than me. They bring up all these major uh, uh, the big picture of all of this uh, uh, you know after the whole four years of the trump administration and and people saying that america is sliding towards fascism is this more than just how we used to look at these cases as uh um you know the, just bad apples a few bad apples or uh, or a question of training or uh, do we have a problem with our police force representing a sort of an armed or are there some good cops who are fighting against this? What? How do you put it? How do you see it? I, I think I think it's all of the above. Um, you may not know this, but I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. I'm an author of a of a book called Cardiac Arrest: A Tactical Guide on How to Handle Unlawful Police Stops. And writing that book, one of the chapters deal with the analysis of what is the solution. And I think your caller is is right on point when we speak to having psychological evaluations. And the reason why we need that, we need that before you join the police department, we need that during your 10 years, five years, eight years, 12 years on the police department. Because having grown up in the Bronx, having grown up in the New York City projects, housing authority, underserved area, knowing what I know, having litigated in this area, in this area of the law, I know that to a degree I'm jaded in how I think and how I see things. And it's nothing to be ashamed about. And if you work as a police officer day in and day out, you become jaded. And there's nothing wrong with having an evaluation to determine whether or not this might be a good time for you to do something else. Or you shouldn't be on the force as it is. But as long as NYPD self-regulates itself, and as long as mayors now, in the past, and to come, capitulate to the police benevolent association as if they are the NRA, then you'll never get that reform. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of going back as far as Eleanor Bumpers and the whole idea of how you respond to a emergent, uh, an emotionally disturbed person, which I don't really think uh, uh, that uh, uh, Kowalski was emotionally disturbed in the true sense. He Correct. was just questioning, Correct. why do I have to allow you into my house? Um, and then the police seem to be the ones who escalated it from there. We got a couple of calls coming, but my question, which I want to think of maybe a little later we could deal with it, is uh, somebody else should be responding to EDPs than armed police possibly. That that Well, they have CTI training for which this police department didn't put in place, did not have that social worker, did not have that trained person to go out with the, with the two officers. And if not both, one or two of the officers just got finished completing the CTI training, which speaks to how to deal with someone that you might think has a mental challenge or emotional challenge. And they did not implement any of that training. And clearly that training is not to keep on repeating in a very monotone, not soothing, but escalating voice, put down a knife, put down a knife, put down a knife, and not having any communication between you and the party to state why you're in their house. 112 you know, seconds, that's not very long. We have another, we got to talk, my brain is, is, is swimming in all of this. We have another caller on the line, maybe they can help pull me out of this, uh, this morass. Uh, welcome to WBAI. Thank you. Good afternoon, sir, and thank you for taking my call. And um, I wish you the best of luck, sir, with uh, the case. What I wanted to say, and I'll say it quickly, I'm from Cambria Heights, Queens, New York. Uh, first thing is, I don't, I can't remember her name, but God bless the young woman who videotaped what happened to Mr. Floyd. Because Ms. if Craig, you watch TV and you listen, you read the papers today, the write-up that they gave, and that film are two different things. Without that video, it sounded, it was made to look as if poor guy got, you know, had a medical problem and died in custody. And you, you, so I wanted to mention that. I also wanted to say when you spoke earlier about the police that remember that when Amadou Diallo was killed, his roommates were rousted out of bed. And they said, and I remember at the time, they were not told that he was, out, he was laying outside dead. They were just rough. They were the police were in there looking to see what they could find on Mr. Diallo. And the last point I wanted to to leave with you all, and because you are a damn good reporter, and I have a lot of respect for the people of BAI, but to some of these idiots who I see on television, who interview these police chiefs, and they ask them this question: If any of them are listening to me, you idiots, stop asking this particular question. Can't you shoot him in the arm or the leg? Because I will tell you the answer now. Many of us, many people out there, get their impression of the police from NYPD Blue, uh, Olivia Benson on SVU. You catch my drift? The Rifleman years ago with Chuck Connors, Matt Dillon. They aim for center mass. The problem is when it comes down to black people, they're quicker to grab that gun. So that's what I, I wanted to say, and I know there are other people out there who have other things to say, too. Great. Thank you very much for that comment. By the way, though, the, the woman, the teen who filmed Floyd's murder is Darnella Frazier, who is probably the most famous film filmer of anything on, a, on an iPhone or whatever phone she had in, in, in history at, at this moment right now, mentioned by the President of the United States. We have another caller come uh, our guest again, Royce Russell, an attorney who's worked on a lot of these cases. Welcome to WBAI. Yeah, I was calling because I think there's a lot of confusion of the law in, in this country. Like, you know, a lot of people keep on saying it's democracy and it's a republic. I mean, I had a little bit of experience in court that, you know, um, they charged me with a cop of five misdemeanors and one telling me everything was wiped away because of... Me, thank God, knowing the law. Uh, what what happens is that it brings the, the police cannot get around of a bill of attainder. Okay, I don't know if you know what a bill of attainder is. In the Constitution, um, it states that in the legislation they can't make laws 
that you get punished right away. So the thing is, one of the reasons how I won is, is that police officers are not police officers until they have jurisdiction to do, um, do what they do. Then they become a regular man. They don't have the power to do what they do. And if you look at the case, John Babb versus United States, okay, he killed a police officer. He went to all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said no in the common law jurisdiction because he didn't have a warrant. It's not murder. So I don't understand how a lot of people just get lost. And there's a lot of weapons that you can use, like a writ of coronto. Okay, a writ of coronto states anybody that is a public servant and everything, you can bring them to court with that writ of coronto. What what's happening is is the difference between legislation court and constitutional court. You're bringing to a legislation court, which has no business in of restraining of liberty. And that's the problem. So you bring a cop to a legislation court, the people, are, I mean, the, the, gov, the people that work for the government that gives you the right. But if you go to a constitutional court, God gives you the right and it's written to the constitution. Really All right. Let me let me say right. That's very. Uh, that, that I want to sum that into a question. Uh, legally, uh, and we're talking with an attorney, Royce Russell. Um, why is it that we live in a society of laws, but millions of our citizens, or our fellow citizens, don't get protection of the law? Well, okay, it's, it's one thing to have. I'm gonna just leave it at that. We're gonna leave it. We're gonna move on to the next call because I think that's that's enough to start right now. We're gonna have the whole show on all the ways we could do this. But let <laughs> me uh, get the lawyer's perspective on this. Um, I, I think there's a difference between laws that are on the books and implementation. Uh, no law is a law is only as good as the person that's implementing it, safeguarding it and making sure that there's transparency and that is being followed to the letter. And when you have any weak link in any uh, what I call conflicting interests, when you look at a district attorney's office and you look at law enforcement, they have to work hand in hand, but yet the district attorney's office has to be the instrument that creates the punitive vehicle uh, and consequences for the misconduct, uh, you're going to have controversy. And, and that's why there needs to be a separation, and we need strong people in strong positions to say that we are done with having to explain to the citizens and the community why a police officer cannot use or did not use common sense like in the Trawick matter, like close the door. Well, mentioning the Old West, I mean, um, they used to – you know, just send people out dead or alive and, and shoot them and bring them back in for the reward, right? They call them bounty hunters. We can't do that anymore. Have we shifted that power to the police now? Or are we just having bounty hunters like we did in the 19th century and we just never really changed? You will have bounty hunters if there's no consequence. You will have bounty hunters for any for any employment. If you are if you are celebrated for misconduct and not vilified, then it becomes the norm, and that's what we're looking at. Right. Do we have any more calls, Reggie, on the line? Uh, yes, we do. Well, if you're up for it, we can take another call or two. Well, yeah, next, we you're do on the then? you're on the line. Go ahead. You're on the air. WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo, and our guest is Attorney Royce Russell, and we're talking about policing in America today. Hi, Royce. Yes. Hi, my Go name ahead. is Russell. That's my first name. Uh, I'd like to ask you two quick questions. I'd like to ask you two quick questions. Royce, do you think we could use GPS, which is on every single modern car, and artificial intelligence to, to help police who then won't have to stop cars? Will it save the police officers' lives and the motorists' lives? And the second question, Royce, I have for you is, would, do you think the police officer that shot Ashley Babbitt in the face should face the same due process you called for other officers. Thank you very much, Royce. 
Right. Okay. And we have a wide variety of callers at BAI, and we do not screen our calls. So I'll hand it to Ashley Babbitt was in January 6th. She was shot dead, and the officer who shot her uh, was uh, found to have acted within his powers. And uh, that happened in the uh, steps of the United States Capitol on January 6th, as you may remember. Well, I mean, there, there, is, there is different scenarios that cause for every action, there's a reaction. And when you're on the steps of the United States, uh, the White House, and you have that type of environment, I will tell you that the officers who acted in whatever fashion they did will not even, even equate to what happens in the South Bronx on a Friday as far as their reaction and the level of aggression and what goes on and, and how people are policed. In other words, are you saying that if we had a – which doesn't exist, but let's say Trump was right about his nonsense and we had a crazed mob of Black Lives Matter supporters and all their friends and we rushed the the Capitol steps and smashed our way in, we might have been treated more roughly than the January 6th invaders were? Without a question. Without a question. And a matter of fact – I would even forecast that we wouldn't even got that close. It wouldn't even right. been a matter if we rushed the White House. We would have never been anywhere near the White House. Uh, the National Guard would have been called. Every force in the world would have been called. Very interesting. Let's take another. I, I, that was a, I like that question. Thank you, Russell, who called for that question because I think it's, it's refreshing when we deal with that. Uh, next question. Next uh, call, please. Go ahead. You're on the radio. Hi. My name is Rose. I live in Flemington, New Jersey. And the other day I was dancing around the dial, and somebody had suggested that we license and insure our police departments all over America. We could have them individually responsible for taking care of their own premiums and thus save our taxpayers all these exorbitant fines when they act up. And besides, if somebody made too many uh, draws on the on the insurance policy they be automatically dropped i also believe that we should annually have them checked out they have to re 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 you know license themselves every year just like everybody else who has a car but this way we could certainly save the taxpayers a great deal of money and we also could make the insurance companies happy with all that new business i find that fat the idea and 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 uh, and uh, Royce, let me ask you that. What about? And I've heard, I've even heard judges in cases say this: that officers should pay these settlements when they have to settle well, for fifty million or twenty-seven million or five million. Why aren't the officers who are who are the result causing these lawsuits asked to pay them? Well, let me say once again, your callers are very, uh, very, very intelligent, and I appreciate. Uh, the question, and I will refer to, once again, cardiac arrest, a tactical guide on how to handle unlawful police stops, which speaks to what is the resolution. The resolution is accountability, direct accountability. Now, I was not as heavy-handed as the caller in reference to, or you in suggesting that they should pay the settlement, but they should pay a portion of the settlement. And whether that's 5%, 10%, we can look at Colorado, Colorado. Colorado, they have on their books that the police have to pay a portion of the settlement that should be implemented because for every action once again there's a reaction and if there is no consequences the action will repeat itself and so if you don't have a moral scope then you may have a financial scope that tells you or compass that tells you that i need to protect myself financially if i'm not thinking morally and make sure that I intervene when another officer is being excessive and abusive, and I don't do it myself. So I agree with the caller, um, and that should be implemented. And I, th- I've, I actually heard a, a federal court judge say that. Uh, why isn't the officer? Uh, I thought actually I thought the federal court judge was t- was tougher than what you're saying. You're you're going easier. The, the, he said yeah, this shouldn't yeah, even yeah, be yeah. in a court. Or uh, this is, shouldn't even deal with the government. This is a personal dispute. This should go into into a, a personal tort type of thing, <laughs> which I I, don't, I see you don't agree with. But I heard a judge even say that. Well, look, I have to look at. 
at the end of the day, how does the family receive some type of justice? And we all know that the only true way is determination and an ancillary way is compensation. So you know that sometimes officers are judgment-proof. And so at the end of the day, you have liability, you have no termination, you have nothing that's punitive, and you walk away with the feeling that, yes, a court found him liable, and that's it. All right. Now, as we begin to wrap up here, and thank you so much, Royce Russell, for joining us for for this entire hour. It's been a fascinating, illuminating experience, and our, our listeners, I can tell from the calls, are loving it. Um, where do we where do we where can we how can we make officers accountable? And we know there's laws. The Supreme Court has ruled that they have a certain amount of immunity and different things. Uh, how is it possible to not only make officers accountable, because it seems like the money they can pay twenty and thirty million dollars, and they still and the next day there's another shooting. Um, something. How can we personally make these officers accountable, the ones who do these things? Well, I think we spoke to part of it, right? There has to be some percentage that they have to pay out of pocket. If the municipality or if the or if the county is paying for you, basically what is happening is that the citizens of that county is not only paying taxes and paying their salary, their taxes is going to people that have been victimized by police. So one, there has to be financial accountability, personal financial accountability. There need to be structure, and the police department does not need to handle their own what we call regulation and discipline. There needs to be an outside body that deals with that because clearly that is not working. Clearly that is a recipe for disaster. And it is frowned upon. There needs to be a movement that lifts up and, and, and glorify and promote other officers to intervene when they see misconduct and make sure that they're taken care of like we do in other cases of whistleblowers where someone is, is, is reporting a bad actor to make sure that they can stay on the force and that they are treated right. And then I think when it comes down to, at least in New York, where we have a commissioner in some of the bigger cities, maybe that needs to be an elected position, not an appointed position. Maybe there needs to be a platform for which the commission needs to run on, so therefore we can hold that commissioner accountable. I don't know the philosophy of this commissioner in New York. Neither do you. Neither does any of our callers. All we know is that he's the next in line and he's the commissioner. Right. How does That's, that happen? Yeah. And we know that he take, makes the final decision on all the – whatever the CCRB, whatever anybody says, every disciplinary decision is made by him. And he seems to make almost every one that I've heard, uh, he defends the police in that instance. It's always – you know, Wouldn't you, you want to know who that person is and what his philosophy is? I do. I wish I did know more about his philosophy. We don't seem to know really much about him at all. The mayor seems to be claim – because he has that power, he wants power over the police. He has the power to hire or fire the commissioner who he appointed, and it makes the mayor ultimately in charge, isn't it? It does, but it seems that this mayor here is a dog without teeth. <laughs> That's without a doubt a toothless dog. No. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Mayor, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean it. I hope to have you on one day to interview you about this very subject. Don't take it personally. Um, thank you so much. I don't know. Do we have another call? Maybe we can fit one more call in. Do we have any more calls? Uh, yes, we do. Let's take one more call. Thanks for staying with us. I, I, I just want. I, I love our listeners. They always have something interesting to add. Go ahead as we as we as we come to an end here. I just wanted to explain uh, with the Constitutional Court. That's where I went to, okay, to get satisfaction from a oh. cop. I'm not oh, gonna... no, only one at a time. I'm sorry, one time each person. I, I'm sorry to, to, to knock you off there, but another time, be fear to joy. Russell, for example, he, he only calls once, right? Only one time per guest. But I appreciate that you feel strongly about that. Can we try one more? All right, let's try again. Oh, all right. I guess not. Okay, then we're done. We've, we've, we've run the line. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a, a very interesting. Royce Russell, uh, we learned so much from your uh, time with us. Uh, just to, to wrap up, what happens next in the Kowalski Trawick case? Where do we go from here? It, it looks like uh, justice is not going to be coming from the city or from the NYPD. Where do you go for justice next? Well, what we do is we make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed and that the process still goes on. 
we make sure that the Civil Complaint Review Board hands down some type of adjudication. And then we can shine light on how the commissioner is ignoring that. We want to make sure that the civil side of the case, civil, civil litigation, is moves forward, that there is transparency, that documents in, in, in video. Okay, if I introduce Slowwood tonight. All the other paperwork that is necessary uh, is brought to the forefront of this family so they can have closure, and we keep the fight going. I see. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as I said, it's been a very illuminating experience. And, and the sad story of, a, of a, a harmless man who was just trying to get into his apartment who ended up dead in 112 seconds uh, by two men who knew nothing about him and didn't care to really learn anything about him. They just snuffed out a, a creative spirit, a creative life that um, could have been one of our callers today. It's a, it's a sad story. It, it makes me, it fills my eyes with tears when I hear about this kind of thing and I hear these videos, which I play all too often here on WBAI. But thank Can you I so much for joining us. And tell last, us about your book one, say, one last time. I just want to say one last thing. Go At ahead. At the end of the day, Officer Brendan Thompson, Thomas Thompson and Herbert Davis should be fired. And I am about protecting the community. So if you want to protect yourself, please purchase cardiac arrest, a tactical guide on how to handle unlawful police stops because relying on the police to protect you from excessive and abusive, abuse of authority and abuse in and of itself is a remedy for disaster. And thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And who publishes that book? Makes it easier to get. You can see it on, you can get it on Amazon. You can go to cardiac arrest, uh, book.net and you can purchase it there. Great. Thank you very much for joining us. And that was Royce Russell. He's an attorney who's been uh, well known for his work in the Romarley Graham case. And he's of late representing Kawasaki Trawick's family. Kawasaki Trawick, uh, as we played earlier in this uh, in this episode, was uh, uh, shot dead within 112 seconds in his own kitchen by police officers who had no reason to be there or to be in his home. And uh, it just amazes me that these officers have not been fired and have uh, uh, are been exonerated, in fact, by the NYPD. So um, I don't know. I don't have much more to say. Um, you know, if there, this is the WBAI special, news special. Uh, I'm Paul DiRienzo. I'd like to thank Linda Perry, whose idea this was, and uh, will next two days there's going to be some uh, programming at the news hour on Earth Day and uh, all the important things there, and I'll be joining you again next week. 